Lord God, we come before your throne. We remember from Isaiah how he was shaking in his shoes with knees knocking when he saw you high and lifted up and the majestic train filled the quaking temple. And, but we remember the angel saying to the shepherds, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And we, rem we, re we remember Paul telling us that he, we did not receive a spirit that makes us slaves to fear, but we have received the spirit of sonship, which gives us the right and honor to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. We read these truths from your word, make them real in our hearts and in the hearts of these young ones before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There was a little boy, he was about six years old, old enough to write some scribble on a pad. One night, he was very anxious. Uh, he was having a hard time sleeping. And uh, so he wrote this little note to uh, his mother on this common notepad, asking her if he could stay in his parents' bed for just that night. Of course, this mother did. The mother thought that that note was very precious and kept it for many, many years. In fact, she kept it until that little boy turned to become a 40-year-old man and gave that note to him on his 40th birthday. Now, when he received that note, he was feeling somewhat embarrassed that it revealed in his childhood this moment of anxiety and fear. But what he wasn't embarrassed about was that he knew that his mommy and daddy deeply loved him and deeply loved his brothers and sisters. And his mommy and daddy would often talk about him and his siblings with great affection and with great devotion. The son knew that his parents would do absolutely anything to love them and to show their love for their children. Well, that little boy was me. <laughs> I was that beloved son. It is the prayer of the Son of God to his father, praying aloud so that his disciples could enter into this most precious and intimate moment of communion with the Father. It was a prayer on the eve of his death. He knows he is about to die for the sins of the world, to rise and to send the Holy Spirit. How great it is that this prayer, John 17, has been preserved for us. The remarkable prayer by Jesus has been spoken by people over the centuries in the most superlative of terms. Albert Bangle said, while this chapter is the easiest in the whole Bible, it regards the words, simple sentences, shortness of words, but it is the deepest in meaning of any chapter in the Bible. Martin Luther says of this prayer, it sounds so honest, so simple, and it is so rich and so wide, no one can fathom it. And commentator John Brown wrote, There is no bringing out of those plain words all that is in them. Bishop Ryle said, Anglican Bishop, This chapter is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone. There is nothing like it. 
I like John Calvin's summary of this. Here we see the soul of Jesus. Jesus just got finished speaking with his disciples. Uh, We find this discourse in chapters 13 all the way through 16. He now turns his attention to his Father in heaven, and we are eavesdropping on this prayer. Uh, We are overhearing Jesus' intimate, personal conversation with his Father. Disciples, as it were, have been brought into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, in the triune God. This was the most intimate of conversations, so much about them and the love of the Father and the love of the Son is expressed in this prayer. And the love of the Father and the love of the Son and the Holy Spirit is expressed for you, believer. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit and all that they are given to in this mission to redeem those out of the world are expressed here. Pastor Stan reviewed for us two weeks ago the opening verses of 1 through 5 where Jesus prays for his glory, for the Father's glory, and for the glory of ourselves, for those who follow him as he devotes himself to finishing the task, his mission of giving his life on the cross to accomplish eternal life for all those God had given him. And then last week, uh, RUF Pastor Jacob Jason gave us verse 6 to 16, where Jesus prays for his disciples and reveals how Jesus saves them. He prays for us, he protects us, and he fills us with joy. Well, today, we're just going to be looking at three verses, verse 17 to 19. To sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so here we find that Jesus prays for the sanctification of his disciples. Not only that they would be separated for a holy life after the character of Jesus, of the God that they're following, but they would be separated after the character of Jesus in his mission to the world. What Jesus is focused on in this prayer is the sanctification, the holiness to mission. Sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. And then we find this verse in the middle. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Then we see the closure, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. So here Jesus shows us the means of our sanctification to mission, the truth, the word of God. The means of our sanctification. Many people question the reliability and the credibility and the truthfulness of the scriptures. Barry Cooper, uh, in his excellent short book on the nature of scriptures, and if you want a, a good summary, a very short book that addresses a lot of the issues and the arguments around the credibility of the scriptures, this is a great little book. Uh, Can I really trust the Bible? He opens quoting a popular orientation. The Bible is full of wonderful stories, like amazing stories, and there's lots of wisdom in it. But some of it is very weird, (laughs) and most of it is outdated. Then there are the miracles, which you have to take with a big pinch of salt. Plus, obviously, it's been corrupted over time as it's been passed on. So I think 
I just think people should take what's helpful and not get so hung up on it. This is a very popular view of the Bible. Unfortunately, we don't have the time in this single message to respond to all of these questions, but it is worth reviewing briefly what Jesus' view of the Scriptures was that was referenced here in this text. Over and over again, in the Gospel accounts, Jesus refers to passages in the Old Testament with the quote, it is written, like when he was confronted by Satan in the wilderness, when he was tempted to turn the stones into bread, and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And each one of those temptations, uh, Jesus responds to Satan's temptations by quoting Scripture. And all those passages are actually from the book of Deuteronomy. It is written. The words of Deuteronomy had a big place in Jesus' heart. When the legal expert asked Jesus in Matthew 29, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. There's 200 places in, in the Gospels, account in the New Testament, that, uh, that are referred to in that one book. Jesus chastises the disbelieving disciples after the resurrection on the road to, to Emmaus. Uh, he said to them, they didn't recognize who Jesus was at the time, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. According to Jesus, then, everything written about him in the Old Testament must happen. Why? Because according to Jesus, it is written in the scripture. And everything written that is completely trustworthy because it comes from God. Jesus reiterates his point when he says simply, Scripture cannot be broken in John 10, verse 35. And so when he spoke to the crowd, Jesus upheld that position. He says in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. According to Jesus, even the tiniest fleck of Old Testament punctuation has divine weight and authority. And one of the most stunning illustrations of this comes from Matthew 19, where he's responding to the Pharisees who had a, had a very weak view of the sanctity of marriage, uh, who believed that you could divorce a woman for any and every reason. And he says, haven't you read that in the beginning... At the beginning, the Creator made the male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting Genesis 2, clearly believing that it is the Word of God himself. Cooper says, similarly, it makes no, he makes no bones about the historical truthfulness of the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jonah, Elisha, Elisha, Elijah, Moses, Daniel, David, Solomon, and Isaiah all are referenced by Jesus as real flesh and blood human beings. If we doubt the authority of the Old Testament, or we'd rather cut out some of the things we read in it, all this point puts us in a difficult position. 
To say that we cannot really trust it is to claim at a distance of a few thousand years that we, or the scholars we put our trust in, can see straighter than the Jewish religious authorities, the Jewish people, the writers of the New Testament, and Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, Jesus meant exactly that. So Jesus believes that the Old Testament scriptures was the word of God and that the Old Testament was the truth. And Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit would be given to them to guide them into the truth, the spirit of truth, and he will speak and guide them into all truth. You know, when I think about Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. By them is your servant warning. Keeping them is great reward. I believe that, that those verses, Jesus would say, amen. Jesus would say amen to that. You know, some of us struggle with scriptures. I, there's passages in the scripture I deeply struggle with. There are places in the Bible that are confusing to me. But what I do believe is that Jesus believed that the scriptures were the very word of God, and they are trustworthy, and we can believe them. Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem for the Holy Scriptures, the heavenly character of its content, the efficacy of its doctrine, the majesty of its style, the agreement of all its parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full disclosure to make it makes of the only way of man's salvation. Admit its many other comparable excellencies and its entire perfection are arguments by which it gives abundant evidence that it is the word of God. Nevertheless, this is what the confession says, our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. You cannot argue with just pure rational arguments the conviction of these things. He gives us, God is a rational God. He is the most intelligent rational God. But your conviction of this truth, that the scriptures are the word of God, is really given to you by the Holy Spirit. If you struggle with that, ask him to reveal that to you. But Jesus not only assumed and declared God's word as the truth, but as the means for his disciples for their sanctification. Uh, Pastor Stan shared with us some time ago about the nature of sanctification in one of the confessional shorter catechism statements. Says, it's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live to righteousness. So God is using his word to help us more and more to live according to his character. But as D.A. Carson says, in this particular passage... The nature of God's sanctification here is that we are set apart for holy calling. We are separated, as it were, for mission. Uh, just as uh, the 
It says that just as people and things were reserved for God and are called holy, whether it's a censer from the altar of the temple of the Old Testament or a man set apart to the high priest uh, like Jeremiah or Aaron and the sons who are set apart for a sacred duty, he says if anyone is set apart for God and God's purposes, Lord, that person will do only what God wants and hate all that God hates. That is what it means to be holy as God is holy. But in John's gospel, sanctification is always for mission, always for mission, the mission of the disciples. And he said this can only mean that the means Jesus expects his father to use as, as he sanctifies his son's followers is the truth. He says the father will immerse Jesus' followers in the revelation of himself in his son. He will sanctify them by sending the paraclete, the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. Jesus' followers will be set apart from the world, reserved for God's service insofar as they think and live in conformity to the truth, the word of revelation, supremely mediated through Christ, the word of incarnate, the revelation now embodied in the pages of this book. In practical terms, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him, without learning to live in conformity with the word he has graciously given. By contrast, the heart of worldliness, of what makes the world the world, is fundamental suppression or denial of the truth, profound rejection of God's gracious word, his full disclosure in Christ. Now, why do I make this emphasis? If you've experienced any means of grace in this body, over the last 38 years, from this pulpit, at least for my ministry, and I know from stands and anybody that's mounted this pulpit, it is because of the very serious conviction on the nature of God's word as truth. And that is what keeps us in God's graces, by that conviction. Uh, I was at a conference some years ago at Houghton College uh, talking to students there on urban ministry and, uh, and the challenges of urban and mercy ministry. And, and as they were listening to some of the challenges, uh, one of the students asked, well, why, why haven't you quit? You know, what's kept you going? You know, how have you endured? Uh, and besides the constant encouragement from my wife, Maria, which I don't think I actually said then, <coughs> I should have, I said spiritual journaling. I said, the thing that's kept me in the saddle, that's helped me to process all of my junk, that has helped me to deal with all of the forces that just seek to crush me, is the ability that I have to look at God's word and prayerfully seek to apply it in my life through concrete writing my heart out on pages. And uh, at the beginning of the church's ministry, I just I had read a book by Gordon McDonald called The Ordering Your Private World, where he encouraged a prayer journaling. And I have to tell you, that's probably kept me uh, in the saddle over these years and has helped me to, uh, to say. But I didn't get that in seminary. I didn't get that after I was a Christian for a long, long time. I got that discipline for my young life leader when I was 15 years old, after I first came to Christ. And he helped me to learn how to have a quiet time. Well, what's a quiet time? A quiet time is you open up the scriptures, you pray, God, show me what you want to teach me today, and you read some passage of scripture, and you ask God to share, and then you write down what he's, he's teaching you, and you might pray, 
And so basically I started that practice just like just trying to follow Jesus. And I have realized that that has been the most critical means of grace for my soul uh, over the course of these years. Uh, this, there's a, another means of grace. That's, that's the first journal. Let's see the next slide. Next slide is, you can't really see that very well, but uh, this, this is a little scripture memory card on, the, on our kitchen window that Maria drafted uh, where she, you know, looks at scripture to memorize. You know, uh, thy word have I hid in my heart, the psalmist said, that might not sin against thee. Uh, Psalm 1, you know, where uh, we're encouraged uh, to, to meditate upon the scriptures day and night. And so I encourage you, uh, believers in this body, uh, to not neglect this most holy practice because this is what keeps you in the means of grace. Uh, this is what keeps you in the center of God's mission by your devotion to him, by your conviction of the belief in God's word. If you're here today and you're just trying to figure out how to like enter into this journey and you believe that, yeah, Jesus is right, his word's truth, and I need to give myself to it, and you want to learn some practices, there's a great little uh, devotional a guide outside how to have a meaningful quiet time by Adrian Rogers, very helpful. It's out on the connections desk. But secondly, the likeness in our sanctification. The likeness in our sanctification to mission is the Father sending the Son and the Son sending his disciples. As the Father has sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so we find in this prayer uh, for Jesus' disciples, it has, at the end, their mission into the world. And it demonstrates that, there, that this was the heart of what Jesus was praying for them. He asked that, that God would protect them from the evil one, but he's praying that, that they would not be taken out of the world, but that they would be in the world to be on mission in the world. And to demonstrate, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so we find that uh, Jesus is praying that his disciples would be sent into the world as Jesus was sent into the world. Christ sends us into the world. John Stott said, Mission is from the Latin missio, which means sending. The words Jesus spoke to his first disciples in their, in their representative capacity, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, is still apply. And he says, the universal church, and therefore every local congregation and every Christian in it, is sent into the world to fulfill a definite, defined task. Jesus, the church's Lord, has issued marching orders, individually and corporately, all God's people are now in the world on the king's business. You and I, do you realize that you've been set apart, that you have been sanctified and set apart for the mission that God has called you to? And what is that mission? It's the mission with a message. It's the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come to save sinners and to redeem a people for himself. It is uh, a call to worldwide witness and disciple-making and church planting. The ministry of church planting, Paul, the evangelist, uh, to, was sent to, into the world, uh, shows us a model for that. But secondly, all Christians, and therefore every congregation of the church on earth, are called to practice deeds of mercy and compassion. 
uh, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to address human needs. Because, see, Jesus comes powerful in word, and he comes powerful in deed. The gospel doesn't make a demarcation between the good words that we speak and the good deeds that we do. They are gospel words. They are gospel deeds. They need to be held uh, together. But these good works, uh, these good deeds, these good words are the call to God's people in mission. Uh, Bob Lynn was a, uh, a former pastor here in Baltimore. He was a, actually a part of our congregation for a while, the Dean of Chesapeake Seminary and, and leading a mission to Turkey. But uh, he said, it has been given to God's people to encourage the making of, devi- of decisive, devoted, fruitful, reproducing followers. The church by nature is missional, a going being sent ones. Bob Lynn said, going and making disciples is who we are, who we are, not just a fundamental activity or one of many things we do in the church. A people who are not going are not the church. The church is going by nature. It is our identity. As the Father sent me, so send I you, Jesus said. We might wonder sometimes, well, what's God's will for my life? You know, we, we, we question that. Well, this is it. <laughs> this is it. Believer, you are called to make disciples of all nations, to make disciples who make disciples, regardless of your vocation, your jobs, your life situation, your family, your workplace, or community. Your call is to be God's agent to say, Lord Jesus, who are you calling me to invest in, to pray for, to be in your family, to be your neighbors next door, to be in your workplace? Uh, Michael Ramsey, uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, said, We reveal the faith in our mission only when we go out and put ourselves inside the doubts of the doubter, inside the questions of the questioner, and inside the loneliness of those who have lost their way. All authentic mission is incarnational, where we enter the world and the doubts of others. This week, uh, the world has been grieving and mourning the loss of the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. She began her career as a child singing in her dad's church, uh, who was a pastor, the Reverend C.L. Franklin in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, She achieved commercial acclaim and success with songs such as R-S-E-P-C-E-T, Chain of Fools, Think. You make me feel like a natural woman. It won, she won 18 Grammy Awards and the Best Female R&B Vocal Performance. She was inducted in the Rock uh, and Roll Hall of Fame. Little uh, people know that she was also an accomplished opera singer uh, who filled in for the famous singer uh, Luciano Pavarotti in New Son Dorma. Uh, she was asked in an interview by PBS Gwyn. Eiffel, when did you cross the line from gospel to pop? Aretha adamantly responded, I didn't cross the line. Gospel goes with me. Wherever I go, gospel is a constant. I just broad my musical horizon. And and probably one of the most exemplary uh, moments of that uh, bringing the gospel into the heart of of her uh, music was uh, an interview by Daphne Brooks uh, in the NPR article yesterday uh, called Aretha's Bridge 
her 1971 Grammys performance of one of one song carries the weight of gospel and soul history, where she sang Simon and Garfunkel's uh, "Bridge Over Troubled Water." Uh, but she not only infused and mediated the racial history of the African American Great Migration experience from the north, the south to the north, from rural to urban to agrarian to industrialization. She said, this queen of soul mediated the gospel space between traditional spirituals and blues, bringing the holy sounds of her Baptist upbringing closer to the secularized lyrics of, the fo of her folk hero, Paul Simon. Aretha knew the bridge over troubled waters was, and so did Paul Simon because he got his inspiration in the writing of the song after he heard the swan silver tones, one of the gospel greatest quartets in the 50s sing Mary don't you weep where Jesus meets grieving Mary and mourning Martha after the death of her beloved brother Lazarus who, he, who Jesus would soon raise from the dead and there's a line in that song there was a line in that song that captivated Paul Simon when he heard it I'll be a bridge over troubled I'll be a bridge over deep water if you trust in my name Aretha knew that that bridge was Jesus, that Jesus is the bridge over the deep and troubled waters of the world. And in this occasion, it just shows us how Aretha really brought the gospel with her into her culture and to bear with the pains and the losses uh, of, of the culture and to bring Christ to be a bridge of hope. And so, a believer, uh, you're called not to uh, disconnect from the world, uh, not to be insulated, uh, isolated from the world. Jesus did not pray that you would be taken out of the world, but that he would protect you, but that he would send you into the world to be uh, his presence and his holy presence to show forth uh, good news to others. And so we see the cost of our sanctification. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. And so Jesus, uh, it's, it's been said, the sweep of the fourth gospel demonstrates that the central purpose of the mission of the Son is his death and resurrection and glory. And so Jesus consecrates himself to that cause, to the cross, uh, but he also recognizes that he's consecrated himself, that they too, that the disciples too, that you and I too would be consecrated and devoted uh, to his mission. And so we find in this, this passage that Jesus reveals for us uh, in his prayer, in his appeal to his Father, in this very most intimate conversation, this call to be sanctified by God's word, his truth, to be sanctified to that mission, uh, to recognize that the sending of Jesus is also been given to us to be sent into the world that we are to be a countercultural community, a people of integrity. Uh, this has been a hard couple weeks for uh, the believing community as we have been exposed in the media uh, concerning the brokenness in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but not just the Roman Catholic Church, but also the Protestant Church. Uh, there's been a lot of losses uh, where the name of Christ has been uh, hurt. Uh, that is not... Uh, that is assimilation, that is showing that we are not different from the world. But Jesus wants to build a countercultural community to show forth 
his holiness, his holy character and his holy love. Uh, I was encouraged uh, a few weeks ago, I visited one of our elders, uh, Jeek Malio. Jeek Malio is an elder at Faith, and uh, here he's in a, uh, this, uh, this <coughs> slide where he's started his new business, and it's called Pyrodex. And uh, he's got, a, he's got a, a lab over at uh, um, uh, Sinai Hospital, the complex, and uh, he has uh, developed this, uh, and I, I I'm unfortunately can't say all the particular scientific uh, <laughs> aspects of exactly what he does, but when you take, when you receive medicines, they have to go through a whole series of evaluations and assurances that it's correct and right, and, and so, and so, uh, so what Jeek does is he, he evaluates uh, various uh, products uh, in, in a pure way, and he's produced such a very uh, wonderful uh, way to uh, assure that products are uh, uncontaminated anyhow. All I can say is that it's a pretty remarkable uh, what he has done, and there is a woman uh, who's in that field and from France, uh, and she says, there's only two men that I trust, that I believe in their upright and their, their integrity. One is my husband, and the other is Jeek Malio. <laughs> and, uh, but when I heard that, it just reinforced to me, that is gospel witness in the workplace. You know, when you live faithful in your integrity, you are demonstrating uh, good news, and you are demonstrating the character of your Savior, and that is so important. But finally, I want to just... Uh, share with you uh, another person that's been part of faith. Uh, that is uh, Pastor Reverend Dr. Thurman Williams, but that was when he was a youth pastor here at Faith Christian Fellowship, somewhere between 1995 and 2000. Thurman Williams was uh, on Young Life staff, and he had a sense that he was maybe possibly called to urban ministry, and so uh, we connected, and, and uh, so this church created space to, for Thurman to explore his call to the ministry. He moved into the White House when it was a house full of single men, and, and he began to, to serve, and he began to preach, and what a preacher Thurman is, and uh, he, he grew, and we, we helped him through seminary, Chesapeake Seminary. This church covered his expenses, and, and so over those five years, Thurman grew and developed, and then Thurman, and he met his wife, Evie, here at the Baltimore Christian School, and, and they got married, and then uh, Thurman uh, was then ordained in this sanctuary uh, to the gospel ministry. And very soon after this, uh, Thurman ended up at New Song as their pastor, where he served uh, for 11 years, uh, doing a wonderful uh, gospel work in uh, Sandtown, West Baltimore. Uh, but Thurman, uh, God was blessing Thurman's leadership. And uh, this is a picture of Thurman at the General Assembly of the PCA in Mobile, Alabama a few years ago where he was a keynote speaker. Uh, Thurman, who was a youth pastor in the pews here, uh, sometimes in the pulpit, hanging out with kids in the streets of Old York Road and Mullins Park, uh, became the keynote speaker for a whole denomination. And then uh, Thurman 
is, uh, has now been elected as the chairman of the Mission to North, Com uh, North America Missions Committee of this denomination. Thurman Williams is leading the mission of our denomination as the chair for the whole nation. And then, okay, this, this, this was the Alexander Young. Alexander Young was a moderator. He's a professor, and, uh, and he was pretty impressed with Thurman. Anyhow. <laughs> so here's what's going on with Thurman Williams right now. Thurman Williams has been uh, actually an associate pastor of Grace and Peace Church out in St. Louis, but he is now becoming a church planter himself. Uh, probably he's about 50 years old, and uh, he's, he's going to be helping to plant and lead a, a church plant in St. Louis uh, with New City Fellowship in the community uh, that he's in at West End St. Louis. It all started somewhere in that journey years ago, but we were part of Thurman's journey. We were part of creating space for an emerging leader that we invested in that we helped build and who was having a national impact. And so I would just like to encourage you, church, to keep doing what you're doing. Just continue to make disciples who make disciples. Continue to invest and engage uh, the gospel. Give yourself to the sanctifying truth of God's word. Embrace your sacred calling that Jesus has given to you to be part of his mission field and to recognize that he has invited you to have total access into the most holy of holies. You've been brought in. You who have been far away have been brought in to the most holy place. Jesus lets his disciples hear this conversation, but Jesus prays that, he would, that his disciples would be with him. Jesus deeply loves you, believer, and he wants you in his embrace in the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us uh, these expressions of gospel calling. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you were in our hearts uh, before the foundations of the earth. Thank you, Jesus, that you were determined to give your life uh, for us on the cross. Uh, thank you that you've been allowing us to have be part of this journey. Uh, you've been let you've allowed us to be part of your encouragement uh, in this kingdom endeavor. Uh, Lord, we, I, I can think of so many other examples and models of, of witness in our midst. And Lord, you know all of those services, all of those labors, all those man hours of service and giving that leaders and your people have been given. God, I pray that you would strengthen them. Strengthen them in your word. Strengthen them in your embrace. Let them know your love. And use us for your mission here in Penn Lucy and Baltimore in the world. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with each of you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.